And now, coming to you live from the discussion room, high above the Coot Street Motel 6, it's Jonathan Strata, Gary K. Wolf on the Coot Street Podcast! And here we are, back in two, two, two podcasts in a row in 2016 after taking uh, taking some time off so people could listen to the fine folks we talked to at World Fantasy. And now... Uh, it's it's early in the year, and we mentioned this, and somebody reminded us of us that that the awards thing is is already going. I mean, I am going to within the next couple of days announce the winner of this year's Crawford Award for ICFA, um, and I'll be at that conference in about what eight weeks, possibly. Yeah. So as far as I'm concerned, the year begins then. Absolutely. I mean, th- I mean, we talk about the perpetual awards cycle. It is our perpetual topic of conversation, as you know. And if you think about it, in fact, here in Australia, even earlier than usual, because the two major awards uh, awards in Australia, the Aurealis Awards and the Ditmar Awards, the Ditmar Award nominations close today, the 31st of January. And both the Ditmar Awards and the Aurealis Awards will be presented at this year's Australian National Science Fiction Convention, which happens at Easter. Easter being one of those finicky, freaky religious festivals moves around in the year, and this year is is in mid-March. And so by the end of March, all of the major Australian science fiction awards will be done. My gosh. Yeah. And at the same time, I mean, you're saying you've got the the Crawford for, you know, which if listeners don't recall is for the best first fantasy by somebody. And then... Mm. um, uh, just yesterday, Mid-American 2 in Kansas City opened the nominations for the uh, Hugo Awards for this year. So if you're a member of, I don't know, a whole bunch of things, you can theoretically nominate, uh, mm. have access to their, their voter packet, assuming that's going to happen, and then there will be the actual voting itself. And somewhere along the line, there'll be there'll be everything. There'll be Tiptree Awards and Campbell Awards and Sturgeon Awards and every kind of award you can imagine. It's it's such a wonderful field to have awards like that. I mean, it's uh, this is this is a pointless conversation which we have at least three times a year. No, no, we have it and about yet, we have it about fifteen times a year actually. You know, what we've never discussed too much though. Given that there are like what six or seven million awards, would you say? There's a rough hmm. number. I mean, I'm looking at a list on the on the uh, science fiction awards database page. And there's got to be thirty, forty, and certainly fifteen or twenty that are major enough to be looked at. Here's my question. How awful would you feel mm. if you were never nominated? For any award? Well, okay, this, this, makes, this, this makes a distinction between one award and the next. Um, never nominated for a Hugo Award simply means not enough people like you. Well, I mean, uh, let, let's, no, hang on, no, no. let's be kinder. Not, not, not enough people like you. Not enough people have heard of you. Okay, uh, if they have never heard of you, they don't like you. Don't <laughs> or not. I mean, saying they don't like you suggests a negative thing, Gary. Well, no, no. The thing, is, the thing is, when you're talking about a World Fantasy Award, and you and I each have one of those, and it's a mixed blessing because on the one hand, there is a popular vote involved, which makes you think, that's nice. On the other hand, there's a handful of people making the final judgment. And you can always talk your way out of not getting a World Fantasy Award by saying, it was just those bastards. You know, an ordinary group of insane people who, you know, didn't fritter away their time with, with drink and drugs. They would have nominated me. So whenever there's a judged award, you can always diss the judges and say it's their fault. 
True. You can. Um, you can also... <laughs> on the other hand, if there's a completely popular vote award, you can say, what is this, the people's choice? You know, I mean, <laughs> who am I here, Justin Bieber? I mean, come on, I'd say, who cares about the popular vote? <laughs> I've got cynical excuses for not winning a lot of awards, <laughs> don't believe I've got to tell you, for all that we talk about them here on the podcast, Gary, I actually don't lose any sleep over them. I've never really worried that much about it. I mean, you, you've been an anthologist for a long time. I mean, going back to the Australian anthologies. I started out in the field where there were a few academic awards and uh, not much else. So nobody ever really expected to get nominated for major awards. Yeah. But, you know, over the last, say, 30 years, I've certainly added more and more awards to the, the scene. And you would sort of think there's some, some chance that you, that you might get nominated for something, I suppose. But, you know, look, I've got, well, I, I got at least one friend who really just doesn't like the whole setup and you know, who's active in the field. Because they feel like it just distracts from what's important, which is the quality of the work. I, I've talked to a number of writers who, who not only pretend to feel that way, but actually do feel that way. I mean, I think they're concerned with you know, getting their own work done. Um, sometimes they don't want to seem to be writing to a predetermined audience. Uh, and there's the impression out there that sometimes writing for awards does that. Um, some of the awards which I think are, well, no matter what the award is, I was going to say some of the awards that are difficult to define, like uh, the Tiptree Award or the Shirley Jackson Award, they're not, they're not things you can compete for in an easy way because each year's jury will kind of redefine the whole idea of what the award is. Um, so it's very difficult to write for those awards, and yet I know people who have written stories or novels specifically with those awards in mind. Or, and, and, and so you know, there, there's no getting away from that if you approach it from that angle. Can I just say that is the screwiest thing I ever heard? The people that I'm talking about are pretty screwy people, but I won't name them just now. We'll st- this is one of the things we'll save for when we get together with our listeners in a bar. At no, World not Con- even then. Not even then, Gary. Oh, I'll be glad. That's a behind, no, it's a behind-closed-doors conversation, Gary. Okay, one of the single malt tastings, then. <laughs> Something like that. I mean, look, I think... I think you really lose sight of what you're working for if you're working for awards. I mean, they're nice. Yeah. I like them. Uh, I like being nominated. I like winning when I've been fortunate enough to win. Um, but they're beside the point, surely. You know, I think it was Charles who went, Brown who once said to me that you know he never knew anybody who set out to win a Hugo kind of thing deliberately and coldly who did. That you know the way you won a Hugo, for example, was to do your best work, try your hardest, and people would recognize it. And I think that's true. And I think that the Hugos, for much of their history, have reflected that. Um, sometimes not well, sometimes uh, brilliantly, but I think. Uh, it, uh, a good example of a work finding its Hugo level, of a writer finding her Hugo level without trying for it, is Anne Leckie. How um, so? She, well, in, in the sense that she wrote a novel which was uh, outside of a few few things involving gender and pronoun. In terms of science fiction, it was not a terribly innovative novel, but it was the best novel she could write, uh, and it struck a chord with, with, with lots of different kinds of readers. And I don't think for a minute she was thinking, I'm going to win a Hugo for this. As a matter of fact, I talked to her about it, and she was rather stunned to be nominated i think she's actually as a writer a lot more clever than that and i'll tell you why i mean i don't think no i have to say i don't i don't know Anne very well we've talked a few times so this is not insider knowledge or anything like that 
She's written a trilogy of books that are smart, that are well-written, mm-hmm. that are very timely, that address issues that the field is deeply concerned with right now. However, she does it well enough that you never feel like she's deliberately doing it. You, know, you don't ever feel like she's got an agenda that she's ticking boxes to try and create a work that is uh, a pop, you know, popular and appealing to 21st century juries and voters. I've read a couple of books or looked at a couple of books in the last 12 months particularly where I think this is of a manipulated, if not cynical, deliberate ploy where you've written down your, your accessibility bingo card and you're just uh-huh. checking it off in, in your book. Uh, Leckie is skilled enough and I think genuine enough as a writer that that's never the case. I think that's true. And I, I, I think she was writing, and this is almost a cliche that you hear from any number of writers, but I think she was writing what she wanted to read. Yeah. She, was, she, she knew the kind of adventure science fiction, the kind of large-scale uh, scenarios that she grew up with, but, but that certain things were missing from. And yeah. so she wanted to write what she liked to read, but with things that she would like to read that she didn't see. And that, that, that I think, is how the genre moves forward a little bit. Sure. I mean, she is the, the best descendant of C.J. Cherry out there at the moment. Probably a good example, yeah. You know, and, uh, I don't, and I don't think she would disagree with that as a statement in terms of what she tries to do. No, and I think Cherry probably grew up reading, uh, reading Heinlein and reading space operas and writing the best and most complicated version of that than the, the, that she could think of. And, well, and again, Sherry's, uh, because I've been looking at the 80s again, you know, a lot of what, uh, a good chunk of what went into the new space opera in the 90s was in Sherry in the 80s. Very much. I mean, Sherry is, well, stands for me as my pick as one of the most underestimated and undervalued science fiction and fantasy writers of the past 40 years. I think she's done more intelligent and creative things in her work than people ever allow. And she's been more focused and forward-thinking. Her, her work is gender-balanced. Her wor- work is experimental. Her work is real hard SF. It really does bring a lot of the elements of new space opera. I mean, yes, I mean, I, I don't know whether... I always wonder how much things like publishing houses fundamentally affect these things because you know there you've got Cherry who's uh, published by Daw and Daw at the mm-hmm. time were very much a middle of the genre publisher uh, Cherry was also both blessed and cursed with being very prolific and right. so I think that combination of coming out in those yellow spined and for sort of younger readers who have not seen them just as Golans used to generically brand a lot of their science fiction with blank, you know, with, with blank uh, yellow covers. So Daw produced their collector's edition paperbacks that were numbered and had generic yellow spines. Mm-hmm. And her books came out like that. And she produced lots of them real fast. Short books, series. And all those things elide your appearance of importance and significance. Here's my problem with prolificity, prolificness, prolificarity. Mm-hmm. Uh, writers were very prolific um, the reason I haven't read all of Cherry is because there's too much. Uh, and I, I admit that I'm, I'm guilty about this. There are writers I've not read uh, a lot of uh, Lois McMaster Bujold. And it's not, I don't think these people are overproducing at all. I think they're producing 
exactly what their core readers want them to produce, and I think they have lots of ideas and they're very creative, but I wonder if that level of production works against the kind of recognition you're talking about. Cherry has always been around. She's been reliable. There'll be a new Cherry novel. It'll be fine. It'll be good. And the fans will like it. And sometimes it'll get awards. But is that what makes a classic reputation? It used to. Um, who, for example? Robert Silverberg. Um, I think it took Silverberg quite a while. I mean, I was looking at Silverberg's uh, uh, output in the 60s and 70s, and it if you, if you go before 1970, there are a lot of Silverberg novels. But suddenly, by the end of the 70s, Silverberg has produced a string of masterpieces. Uh, Let me ask you this. This whole issue of being prolific or not being prolific and being taken seriously and getting the kind of quote-unquote recognition you're interested in. How much of it is nothing other than the prejudice of reviewers and critics? Um, I don't know that in, in, in terms of awards, in terms of reputation, I don't think reviewers and critics have much impact on that at all. I don't think that anybody in the critical establishment, if there is one in science fiction, um, or, or, or the major reviewers, have either damaged or helped careers like Silverberg or, or Brujold or Cherry. Uh, so, so to that extent, I, I, I don't think, I think with historians, maybe that's the case. But by and large, you know, Bujold has one of the most consistent reading bases probably in the history of science fiction. She probably has a readership that is as devoted to her as Heinlein's was to him. Sure. But, okay, here's where I feel like we're going to go around in circles, but maybe we'll find some, some ground a little. Okay. There are actually quite a number of examples of writers who were very prolific in their day and who were critically well regarded. Jack Vance mm -hmm. is another example. Jack Vance, if you looked at his bibliography, in a sense, looks quite a lot like C.J. Cherry's. Yeah. Lots of books, all the time, in series. Widely, re he's, he's very well regarded uh, as a grand, I mean, grandmaster in the field, grandmaster of science fiction, grandmaster of fantasy, Absolutely. all this kind of thing. And enormously influential. Now, the question with Cherry is, right, yes, she's, she's committed the sin of being prolific, and probably bears the disadvantage, in inverted commas, which people can't say I'm air quoting, disadvantage of being female. And so you're yeah. coming up against sexism in terms of being taken seriously and being uh, regarded for awards, even though she has won the Hugo a couple of times, I think three times. Um, but when it comes to talking about her body of work, you know, there's this idea like, oh, well, there's too much, there's no way in. Well, that's, that's nonsense. Of course, there's lots of ways in, and it's very easy to find ways into her body of work. Anybody who's read her work could tell you there's, there are guides. Joe Walton spent a great deal of time writing about exactly how exactly. you enter the, enter the body of work of Cedar Cherry. Um, but, okay, Let, to step away from Cherry herself, who, once again, I would you know, shout out to anybody who's listening, who's a member of the Science Fiction and Fantasy Writers of America, or whatever they call it this week, why she's not a grand master, I don't know. That's like an offense against nature almost as far as I'm concerned. But argument there. But how many books are okay? Yesterday I spent an hour or so discussing the career of Adam Roberts, right? Now, Adam produces a, a, a major novel a year, sometimes two. Mm -hmm. Um, he also produces works of criticism, and he, during for a period of time in the 2000s, was producing uh, parodies as well. Is a book a year enough or too many? Well, in addition to being a, 
a full-time academic as well and writing nonfiction criticism. I think of what William Gibson said on this very podcast less than a year ago uh, when we talked about the fact that he was producing a novel every three or four years, that he felt that the pressure on genre writers, not just science fiction writers, thriller writers, mystery writers, romance writers, the pressure to produce at least a book a year, he thought depressed the field. It actually made people write too fast. And I was reading... A good example of this might be Jack, Jack Vance, uh, because as much as he produced, and I was reading his novels, a couple of his novels from the 60s, one which is not widely known or widely read, which is pretty good, Inferio, uh, from 69, I think. Um, and it made me think of some of the earlier novels, and frequently what Vance does is he punts the ending. Uh, he thought of himself as a professional writer, he gets toward the end of a novel, and the last chapter, too much stuff happens in the last chapter. Yeah. And I've seen this with other writers, some of whom are still practicing. Uh, a lot of novelists from the 50s and 60s. I think that there were times when Silverberg did this. I think there were times when... Um, I don't want to get into too many names. But this comes from thinking that you're writing under deadline. You're making a living as a writer. You have to have a novel a year to basically keep the paychecks keep com coming in. And to some extent, I think Gibson had a point. I think uh, spending another six months on a novel might be the way to do it, and you have a lot of novels by great writers who seem rushed at the end. But isn't that actually a tremendously privileged position to take, Gary? You know, Bill Gibson enters the science fiction in the early 1980s. He yeah. sells to the absolute premium top-paying markets beyond his very first short story. Right. And then he produces a novel which, whether or not it was immediately embraced, immediately sold well. And then went on to sell better and better and better and better, and was followed by other. So he immediately was pitching at bestseller bandwidth stuff, uh, and there are other people who've done that. Certainly, like Paolo Bacigalupi and whoever else. But yeah. for the average writer, they're going to sell a handful thousand copies and another handful thousand copies, and they're trying to balance, you know, writing against a day job and hopefully becoming full time. Isn't it a bit entitled to say you should slow down and write less? when what you're trying to do is make a living? If you're making a living as a writer, and it's the same argument that you would hear, and I've got, fr I've got a good friend down the hall from me who's a romance writer that does the same sort of thing. And it's not that much different from the accounts you would see of pulp writers in the 30s and 40s where you have to grind a million words a year out in order to make a minimal kind of living with, with, without a day job. It's a novel version of doing the same thing. Uh, I think you're absolutely right. If somebody is trying to make a living as a writer, uh, you pretty much respect your deadlines. You, you can't be a prima donna. You can't say, I'm sorry, this novel's coming in two years late uh, because you, you, you get dropped. The other, the, other, the other half of that, of course, is that, yes, it is a privileged position, and it's also a privileged position in the sense of how individual writers write. Mm -hmm. If you're Neil Stevenson, you can produce pretty much a thousand-page novel a year uh, most writers at their best couldn't do that. Well, well that's the, the other thing that's very uh, dis, distorting about this, and that is that the, the number of words that goes into a book. Hmm. You know, because someone was saying, well, everyone says George Martin writes slowly, right? Famously hmm. slowly, glacially slowly, until you break those enormous books up into 400 page books. Yeah. And then you suddenly realize, well, hang on, he's writing a book every nine months. Isn't that enough for you? 
And if you look at his career going back to 1972 or 73 or whenever it was, he's been a fairly productive writer in a lot mm. of different fields. And, uh, if, and, so, if, yeah. and also, like, if you look at C.J. Cherry, who we were saying you know, has committed the sin of being prolific, a lot of those books that she wrote are 200 pages long or 150 pages long. Yeah. You know, you look at books like Hunter of Worlds and Serpent's Reach, uh, the Faded Sun trilogy, uh, the original Morgane novels, they're all short. You know, so it wasn't a, a trial in terms of outputting the quantity, if you like, to um, put them out and still take care, uh, take care. Just that, you know, they're, they're not 600-page slabs. I mean, and even then, you know, it's distorted. I mean, from what I understand, John Irving, you know, who you know, puts out a book every three years, doesn't take three years to write a book. It takes six months to write a book. You just can't be bothered writing one for two and a half years. Well, there's a lot of stuff that goes into a heavily edited, marketed book like John Irving, who's expected to carve out a bestseller every time out. So there's that kind of pressure as well. But I think that I think the other problem of being prolific, and you mentioned Joe Walton's explaining how to get into Cherry or how to get into Bajolt. It's absolutely true. But I think here's a problem that comes from fandom, that comes from the nature of science fiction fandom. Uh, I've already confessed I haven't read all of Cherry. I haven't even read most of Cherry. I've read maybe a handful of novels by Bujold. Uh, and to be honest, since we're just putting cards on the table, I've read a handful of novels by Ian Banks. Okay. Uh, I've been impressed by all of them. I've been in, uh, the, the Ian Banks novels, when I finally got around to it, whereas I started with Accession, as a matter of fact, and they were as good or better than everybody had told me. But the problem with fans, speaking of the people who are now going to completely uh, attack us for having said this, is that you, it's the idea that you have to read an author rather than a series of books. Uh, I can, I'm perfectly happy with the Bujold that I've read. I just finished reading Edward James's book on Bujold. A lot of interesting stuff there I would like to get to. I can't do it on my reading schedule. A lot of stuff I someday will retire from reviewing and probably will read them. Same thing's true with Banks, same thing's true with Cherry, same things. I probably read a lot of Jack Vance novels I don't remember. The idea that you have to have read an author in toto in order to talk about that author is a very kind of fanish sort of inverse snobbery, I suppose. Yeah. It's like you can't talk about Buffy if you haven't seen every episode three times. Well, okay. There's, there's, there's two different... There's a couple of things that are sort of spiraled together. There's the, there's the you, can't, you, you can't talk about Buffy without having read everything in Buffy. Well, that's just that bad habit of, of a hardcore fandom of setting up barriers to being part of it, whatever that fandom is. And it's not unique to science fiction. It's a, it's, a, it's a characteristic of fandoms. And a pretty unpleasant one, really, because it's exclusionary rather than inclusionary. Um... The issue of not, in fact, being prolific, but having a... In a sense, okay, what you're saying is it's not a sin that you're prolific. It is a challenge that you have a large bibliography. That's a better way of putting it. Because, because, think about it. If you had started reading C.J. Cherry in 1976, right, she rarely put out more than a book a year. Some Some years she did, but usually she wouldn't put out a book a year. And there are a few hundred pages long. Not a major challenge to, to catch up with. Uh, I, yesterday morning, I finished reading um, The Thing Itself by Adam Roberts. Uh-huh. Uh, I haven't read any of his books since the third one. You know, I did read On Salt and Polish Stomp, yeah? But yeah. I haven't read anything since then. 
There's now 13 novels that I'd have to catch up on if I wanted to catch up on. I don't have to catch up on them. But if I did, you know, can I, can I comment on Adam Roberts without having read those other 13 novels? Of course I can. Um, does, does it seem worse? I mean, like, okay, you, you talk about, I mean, we've talked about who we do and don't read and all that sort of thing. Michael Moorcock is a, is a spectacular example of this. He has something about 60 or 70,000 books under his name, I think, maybe 100,000 books. Uh, nobody will tell you that the same works are the important ones you have to read. There's no consensus at all. Right. So you have to read Mother London, or you have to read Elric, or you have to read the Hawkman trilogy, or you have to read the Corum trilogy, or you have to read whatever else it might be. And it, right. what it creates is an intimidating wall just simply because of the, the, the quantity of titles. And then you begin to mark that person down because you're not familiar with them because you haven't read the, their way in. Now, this particular problem, though, I think is more an artifact of being a reviewer and critic and commentator than it is of being a it reader. Could. Because, as you yourself said, your reading time, my reading time is very closely managed. Right? Mm-hmm. Um... And I know that's true for anybody who writes for Locus. Most of the people who are out there who, who are blogging or commenting. You know, the idea that you're going to wander off and read 40 C.J. Cherry novels because suddenly you're just enthused. And, you know, you sort of say it's, it, it's a problem of, um, of fandoms that they require you to do it. But, but it's a characteristic of enthusiastic readers with, with nothing other than their own enthusiasm to guide them to do exactly that. Because I know when I was 18 or tw- well, 15 or 20 or 25, Mm-hmm. Well, that's what I did when I found a new writer. I read my way through their bibliography, you know, not because yeah, I wanted okay. to be informed or anything else like that, just because I wanted to read them because I liked their books. But there are uh, actually one of the uh, one example to kind of support the point is, um, uh, as, as you know, I've been working on this series of monographs by the University of Illinois Press of contemporary science fiction writers, and the ones that seem uh, easiest to get people to write, are the ones about writers who are classic writers but didn't have a huge bibliography. Alfred Bester didn't write very much, and much of what he wrote late in his career was barely worth reading, frankly. Uh, There's a fine book by Michael Page on uh, Frederick Pohl, who, despite the fact that he had been in the career uh, since the late 30s and and only died recently, the major novels are pretty manageable. Uh, starting with the Poland Cornbluth novels, going through Gateway, and going through later interesting things like the Years of the City. The th- the biggest thing that keeps critics and academics from writing books for this series is that they say, oh, I'd like to write a book on, let's say, C.J. Cherry. Nobody has proposed that that I'm aware of. And then they see how much there is, how much work there is to do. And then suddenly the idea of turning a manuscript in two years later just terrifies people. Uh, we've had people but, okay. they realize how much... But that's partly because they're not thinking it through. I mean, Speaking as a really quite uh, eager C.J. Cherry reader, mm-hmm. if you were to write a book, say, on the science fiction of C.J. Cherry, which I think would be an acceptable kind of thing to do for your kind of program, Masterpiece of Science Fiction, you can skip over the fantasies. You don't have to look at them. Uh, I think you'd find that there's a core group of books you could talk about and can read that would be completely informative and, and worthwhile and useful. Absolutely. It's just a matter of, t- of, of, of getting that interest. And one of the problems I'm sure you face is that the population of people who are willing and able to write books is small. It really is. And the people who are able to write books that are both acceptable to the academic world and knowledgeable enough to the 
uh, to, to the fan readership is it's it's a, it's, a, it's a challenge. I mean, if anybody out there is interested in trying to do this, we've had some people who are not professional literary scholars, like Karen Burnham writing a book on Greg Egan. Um, then that that that's where you have to go. But the idea, uh, the, the the idea that I'm getting at is that uh, looking at the body of work of any writer in a genre, with the exception of a handful, Greg Egan does not. You can read all of Greg Egan without uh, killing yourself. Although it's, it's still fifteen to, novels or something. That's, that's not terrible. That's not terrible. Um, but when you're looking at somebody like look at Silverberg. Uh, there's an incredible career there. I mean, there's an incredible career that goes back from early, really awful derivative short stories through a period of commercial success, through a period of writing really interesting literary things during the late 60s and 70s and 80s, and then and then becoming a fantasy writer late in his career. Well, allowing that we're chipping away at a problem that's tangential to the podcast, let me ask you this just quickly, and we'll throw it out to the people who are academics who are listening or writers who are interested in writing non-fiction who feel like they might be interested in writing for something like the Master Masters of Science Fiction series, is it? Yes? Masters of Modern Science Fiction is the series. Does it have to be a full career overview? should be, yeah. It should be. And it can cover... For example, Edward James did a book on Lois McMaster Bujold, and he didn't skip over the fantasy because some of the fantasy illuminates the science fiction. Yeah, but talking I mean- about... Yeah, but I mean, can't you, could you just cover the core works? Could you cover a period, you know, like Robert Silverberg in the 70s? No, you couldn't really do that. Well, see, I don't think you're ever going to cover Robert Silverberg then, because his career doesn't synopsize down to a nice little 200-page book. Well, uh, no, you would focus on those items, obviously. You would focus on the, the, the there's a book in the series on, on John Brunner, and obviously it's, it focuses on maybe 6 to 12 novels in the late, mid to late 60s. Obviously, it deals with the sheep look up, the shockwave ride, the stand on Zanzibar, the squares of the city, and so forth. But some of the later work is obviously less uh, important to readers in this field, like the great steamboat. Well, certainly when it comes to, to, to Robert Silverberg, I would say this, and he's, he is a towering giant in our field. Um, no one will ever write a book where they've read all his work. No one. Uh, no one will ever write a book where they've even looked at all his work. Not the least because even he doesn't know what all his work is. That's true, and I think there's a good chunk of his early work where he doesn't really care if people look at it and where it's not very illuminating anyway, because, um, as you may know, I, I did a book on his longtime contemporary, I was going to say longtime friend, yeah, they were friends for a long time, on Harlan, and, I, and when I wrote the book, I did read, I think, just about everything Harlan had published, not everything he had written, um, and... Admittedly, he hadn't written novels, which made it a lot easier. A lot of, but there's a huge amount of nonfiction and so forth and so on. And to some extent, what you do is triangulate. You figure out, okay, this is important, but the things he wrote for the thing, the, the, those issues of super science fiction, special monster issues back in the fifties that were written virtually entirely by him and Silverberg under names like Calvin and Knox. Yeah. They tell you nothing about the career of either writer other than that they knew how to make a living in the early 50s. Sure. Uh, And I don't think either one of them would say, oh my God, you forgot to include my childhood scribblings in your study. Oh, Ellison might. No, he he was perfectly happy not to have too much attention paid to the super science stories. (laughs) When I brought up Sex Cabin, he didn't, he was really pleased that I don't think I mentioned it at all. (laughs) How about something like, actually, 
I, I shouldn't be sort of pitching your books. I mean, someone should write about Lee Brackett for you. Um, it's interesting. I was, I was seeing a web discussion a couple of days ago about the, about Lee Brackett. Somebody came up with a list of 50 classic science fiction words, well, one of these February books, and somebody was saying, should The Long Tomorrow be on that? And again, Lee Brackett is one of those writers, and I think this is a challenge um, to, to critics and to writers, uh, because academics um, have a hard time dealing with the, um, uh, with the pulp stories. Uh, with the Eric, uh, John Stark sort of thing. And yet, the later novels, the one later novel in particular, uh, the, the Long Tomorrow, uh, are very literary, very measured, very kind of thoughtful novels. She had one of these careers which is a model career in some ways. And, and, and then to really do a service to Lee Brackett, you'd have to look at her Hollywood scripts. You'd have to look at her movies for Howard Hawks. You'd have to look at The Big Sleep. You'd have to look at uh, Rio Bravo. Uh, and so that's just a fascinating career to me. But, the but, but, but don't, that- don't you limit your kind of discussion, and we're all over that here to no real avail, but uh, don't, don't you limit your discussion in those books to science fiction? Is there you know, the other relevance as masters of science fiction? Um, I don't know. I don't, I don't think anybody's writing about Lee Brackett at the moment. But uh, No, but I mean, you could ask, by the way, you could ask Stephen Hafner if he'd do it. I actually talked because he's reprinting her stuff now. I was talking to Stephen at... Uh, yeah, yeah. Worldcon, as a matter of fact, in, 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 uh, in uh, Spokane. But yeah, there, there, there's a lot of stuff to be done. But the problem with this is there are, and this is interesting, writing books about science fiction writers is a real challenge. And we mentioned last week uh, when we were talking about David Hartwell that he had done a heroic job editing um, the biography, which people have figured out what it was. It was the biography of Heinlein which had way too much interest information in it. There is a book, there's a fascinating book, about Eric Frank Russell, written by some English fan. It was published by Beckon, by Roger Robinson, who publishes me and John Clude. And it's, it's packed with every piece of information that this person could come up with about Eric Frank Russell. What's missing from it is any explanation to an outside reader as to why you should ever read Eric Frank Russell. Hmm. In other words, it's, it's, it's fan biographies written for stone fans are useful references, but they're not going to get read by a lot of different people. Um, Why do you think it is, Gary, and this is actually is germane to what you're saying, I think. Why do you think it is that a magazine like the Paris Review, which admittedly does attract some of the, the best journalists in the world to write for it, can put together lengthy, intelligent biographical essays about writers with interview sections in them, that kind of thing, and yet science fiction seems largely immune to this, that we don't seem to be able to do some kind of equivalent within our borders. Or do you think it happens? I mean, I do look back, at one point I thought that Foundation was doing an interesting series in this space, but I can't think of anything at the moment. The profession of science fiction series in Foundation, which later led to at least two books that I know of, was very useful that way, and uh, uh, when uh, who was it? Did uh, Damon Knight did Hell's Cartographers? Uh, so there have been things like that. Uh, I think part of the problem with the autobiographical stuff is I've talked to writers, and most of them they want to get paid for it. Uh, the other problem writing long profiles, long thoughtful interviews like the Paris Review does. To some extent, that's what David wanted to do with uh, the New York Review of Science Fiction, and occasionally they would do articles. Uh, 
But I'm not just talking about long profiles of individual writers. I'm talking about how you position somebody who's been immensely important in the field and explain what that importance is without telling your reader, you need to read all of this stuff. One of the, here's an example, and it's not a writer. One of the most interesting articles I remember reading in the New York Review of Science Fiction, and I can't remember who wrote it, was a long essay about the career of Groff Conklin. And I was fascinated by that because Groff Conklin told me what to read in terms of short science fiction for decades. Um, I mean, he was... There, there were the year's best anthologies, but there was always a new Groff Conklin anthology. He invented the theme anthology, Thinking Machines and Science Fiction, Invaders of Earth, Science Fiction Adventures in Time, Adventures in Dimension, and so forth and so on. And yet I'd never really thought about what his career was like, what his impact on the field would be. If somebody were to assess David Hartwell uh, and his impact on the field, it would be a huge, massive undertaking, but I think it would be worthwhile. I think it would be worthwhile, and I think actually you know, referencing David, it does touch again on one of the great vulnerabilities in the oral history of our field, and that is that the stories that go with the, that these people have disappear with them. I mean, I was struck, Absolutely. I don't know, did you, did you read the piece that Samuel Delaney wrote about David Hartwell that came out over the past couple of weeks? Where uh, It was fascinating because, I mean, he talked about how critical Hartwell was in his career. He talked mm-hmm. about how he published his major works of criticism. He talked about how he protected defended him and his, his, his work being published at key points in his career and was in, instrumental in getting books published. He talked about him publishing key works on, you know, the, the, from um, Marilyn Hacker, uh, Delaney's uh, wife. And he also talked about him employing Dane, Delaney when you know, Delaney was unable to make money for various periods of time so that he would be able to get by. This kind of thing. Those stories disappear and I know that a lot of them disappeared when David died. A lot Absolutely. of them dis- dis- you know, disappeared when Charles died. And so I'm eager to see these things put down. I-, I do take your point that these things are... They're difficult to get remuneration for. And I-, I wonder if the model to deal with them isn't something like, unfortunately, the Masters of Science Fiction series in an academic context. It's more along the Cecilia Holland, Kindle Single Essays kind of thing, where you write a 30,000-word piece. Like, I know that at one point, uh, our mutual friend and... Uh, Nebula Award-winning writer, I think Nebula Award-winning uh, Eileen Gunn, was working on a biography of uh, Avram Davidson that she ultimately set aside. But I wonder if there was a thirty-thousand-word essay in there somewhere that she could have put up as a Kindle single that may well have attracted enough interest to make it worthwhile for her to have done it. And if this might be a kind of uh, venue where that kind of discussion could happen, it's an interesting thought. I mean, we talk, Cecilia happens to be a historical novelist who wrote things that were just utterly fascinating for Kindle singles, and we're talking about things that are fairly narrow in their appeal. But I think you're right. There needs to be a venue for that sort of thing. And by and large, uh, the academic journals in science fiction haven't really generated much along those lines, and I don't think they've encouraged much along those lines. The New York Review of Science Fiction really didn't have the space to do it and pay very well. So the question is, why do you do things like that? But, but on the other hand, you're absolutely right. This stuff gets lost. I mean, I've been haunted ever since we were at the first World Fantasy in Saratoga Springs, which you'll recall. Um, not the most recent one, but the one, what, six or seven years 2007, ago? 2007, yeah. Yeah, 2007, I ended up having dinner three nights in a row, I think, with Betty Ballantyne, listening to her. 
And everybody that joined us for dinner wanted to listen to it, and everybody had the same reaction I did. We need to get this woman's stuff down. We need to get her, you know, her history and her. That's the entire history of paperback publishing in the states. Um, and um, go ahead. I was just saying. Well, that makes me think that one thing that I have to tip my hat to, uh, coming out later this year, I think, is a book put together by Alvaro. What's his name? Alvaro. I forget his name. Oh, that's terrible. A friend of Bob Silverberg's who's recorded a whole bunch of interviews with Bob and is putting them oh, in, okay. in book form. And that should be a major thing. I mean, hopefully we'll capture a lot of this kind of stuff from Bob's perspective because obviously, you know, as someone who's been act- one, of the, one of the few people who's been active in the science fiction field who's still alive from back in, you know, back in the day, it's a major thing uh-huh. to have him around to share the information that he has. And one of the things, and there have been a few things like this. There was a collection from a university press a few years ago called Conversations with Octavia Butler. The problem with that book is that it it was very useful. It put together almost every interview, every published interview with Octavia Butler. But since it was not organized in any predetermined way, every interview basically covered the same material. Uh, and very few... This is what happens also when somebody gets a kind of uh, general cultural recognition that Octavia won, is that Nobody talked to her about her beginnings in science fiction. Nobody talked to her yeah. about going to the workshop with Harlan Ellison, about the influence that editors had on her career. So a lot of that stuff gets lost. And you're absolutely right. The idea of doing something like that just to preserve this material is, is a big gap in the field. Several years ago, and I don't know if it's still going on, but the I think Michigan State University, uh, when it was still hosting... Clarion started something called the Science Fiction Oral History Project. And there were long, and there are long taped audio interviews with a lot of people. There are a number of video interviews that James Gunn has at the Center for the Study of Science Fiction in Lawrence, Kansas. There is even, uh, Youngstown State even has a popular culture archive when I was doing research on Lee Brackett. The longest interview with Lee Brackett, which you can listen to, um, was, was in Youngstown State. So, so this stuff is scattered all over, and I think, by and large, there's no sen- single place for somebody who's interested in, say, Avram Davidson to go to find this material. Yeah. I mean, the, 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 uh, the, other extra- the, the, the other way of making this commercially viable, of course, is that you can be Alice Sheldon. You can have such a wildly colorful life that even non-science fiction readers are fascinated by it. Yeah, uh, the, the, the there, there are a few of those, a few who stand out, but they are rare. I mean, mostly you're rare. talking about a bunch of people who stayed at home and wrote. Yeah, I mean, basically, I mean, we've we both talked to Bob about this. Bob's career was basically being a it was being a poor science fiction writer, and then it was being a rich science fiction writer. Yeah, but it's, all the time it's being a writer. On the other hand, you get these interesting stories. You know, Frank Herbert builds a houseboat with Jack Vance, and they have a falling out. Jack Vance builds his own house. Avram Davidson goes, lives in Belize or somewhere. Um, all these kind of things. And that, they make it sound interesting. And then, of course, there's the scurrilous stuff that's really of no moment, really, other than being prurient. So you hear about all the various relationships between science fiction oh, writers I'm, back in the 50s and all this kind of thing. I'm, I'm sure that if you talked enough to, 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 to Bob Silverberg and to Earl Kemp and people like that, you could probably write a book called Fifty Shades of Randall Garrett. <laughs> I'm pretty happy not to, though. I'm pretty happy not I, I, to. I don't think I particularly want to read it, but but the point I was making about uh, Julie Phillips's biography of Alice Sheldon, uh, 
is that you have, uh, the only other person I can think of really is Paul Leinbarger. You have a life which is so colorful and covers so many different issues that are current issues that the science fiction isn't even the central part of the biography necessarily. Yeah, yeah. Uh, let me ask you a very unfair question, and I should have some kind of a fill so that I can allow you to gather your thoughts. As listeners to this podcast will know, and as we presaged at the very beginning of the discussion, uh, within the last previous 24 hours, Mid-American opened the Hugo Awards nominations, which are open for some period of time. Um, one of the categories is Best Related Work, which covers mm. major works of non-fiction, that kind of thing. The kind of thing... Art- Oh, that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what I'm curious about, off the top of your head, you should already been gathering thoughts as I say this, is I'm curious to, to know what you think were the major critical or non-fiction works of 2015, if any come to mind. I know that when I think about various things, typically Spectrum Art would be something. There was a book that the Spectrum Art publishers put out called Women of Wonder, which stole the Pamela Sargent title rather unmercifully, but nonetheless mm. was a really useful book in terms of giving an overview of women working in science fiction and fantasy art today, something that gets too little attention. And I know that there are books that came out through the University of Illinois Press Program, but I wonder if, if beyond that, anything has really struck you as being interesting or outstanding. Nothing. Uh, 2015 would be a hard year to talk about because major biographies, I'm, I'm trying to think, I think one of the Bradbury biographies uh, came out uh, during the year from Jonathan Hiller. I think the third one there was one called Becoming Ray Bradbury, and I, from the from um, also from the Univers- University of Illinois Press, but not from um, not part of my series. So, so that's interesting because Bradbury did have a fairly interesting life. There was a book marginal to our field, but in a way not marginal to our field. There was Joe Lepore's uh, biography of Wonder Woman, which was at least the long extract I read in the New Yorker, utterly fascinating mm-hmm. in terms of roles and polyamory and the guy this guy was very strange uh, and it was very well written um, I'm sure I'm thinking of something but the, you know the, every once in a while you'll get a major history of science fiction that you can argue with like Roger Luckhurst or like Adam Roberts um, each of which any stone science fiction fan or reader longtime reader will think this is really good I didn't know this and you'll read the next chapter and you'll think this is this is sublimely goofy yep. this really does not add up with my perception of the field at all. I don't think there was a major book like that. Um, well, I mean, I know that, for example, Adam Roberts had a book of essays out, this, or a book of reviews out this year. Okay, I didn't see it. Uh, I think it was digitally published. It may have been self-published digitally, I don't know. Uh, but I'm pretty sure it came out this year. Um, obviously, there was uh, the University of Illinois books, because there's a couple yeah. of those out this year, weren't there? There was Lois McMaster, Bujold, Frederick Pohl, and... Um, I should be... Maybe David Seed's book on Ray Bradbury came out during the year. Yeah, okay. And I've certainly read the, the Bujold book, and it was a good book and probably worthy of being nominated, I would suggest. Um, yeah. And, and I'm sure that if we were to talk to someone like Farah Mendelssohn, she could rattle off a whole batch of books. One of the things, of course, that becomes slightly disguised or hidden in, in this era, and it's touched on by your comments about Adam Robertson a moment ago, is that whenever the criticism and review appears uh, digitally, it's more easy to overlook, it seems. I mean, I know that, that John Clute's Encyclopedia Science Fiction Project continues to add hundreds of thousands of words every year. Right. But you don't stop and go, well, hang on, we now have a new edition of the Encyclopedia of Science Fiction, give John another Hugo. Um, right. 
and we will never do that again, I would say. I don't think there'll ever be a fourth edition of the Encyclopedia of Science Fiction. There's just this ongoing online thing because yeah, it's yeah, bigger yeah, than very, one. Yeah, the idea of edition is obsolete with that book. Yeah. Though somebody should ask John to write a book about J.G. Ballard. For my money. That's um, interesting. Yeah. Uh, you know, j- just, I'm just saying. But I mean, the, the, you, you, do mention, you do mention critical writers, and, uh, and a- Adam Roberts is always... First of all, he writes well. I mean, there is this... There has always been this field... Uh, and there's a kind of contest that goes on between academics and, and fans and professional writers. But Adam writes very well. His essays are stimulating. His critical insights are original, and it's it's it's, it's reflected in his um, in his criticism as well as his fiction. And obviously, one of the things that influenced me, Aldous Budris, wrote very well. Damon Knight wrote very well. Yep. Uh, not all academics write that well, which is part of the problem. Well, well, it, it, it is. I mean, I was going to say, why is it that so much science fiction and fantasy commentary um, is boring? I mean, one of the things that struck me when I first encountered science fiction, there were, there were people that I read who were actually fabulously entertaining to read as critics and commentators. Whether you mm-hmm. agreed with him or not, Algis Budras and FNSF was incre- very entertaining to read. So was Joanna Russ before that. Yeah. Uh, whether you understood him or not, John Clute in Interzone particularly, never as much mm-hmm. afterwards, but in Interzone was really always really interesting to read. I think for so- something happened to Zeru's after Interzone, they're less coherent. Um, and then, you know, you could look back at other, other great periods. I will say, by the way, the, there, there was indeed a, an annual book of reviews by Adam Roberts, a book called Raven Let Die, The SF and Fantasy of 2014. And that ah. should probably be considered. I mean, because what yes. I was going to say was, when I leap forward, one of the things that I, I realized I was looking forward to was the year in review pieces, the... Um, the Hugo nominee pieces, the um, uh, gone blank. Anyway, these these these, these awards overview pieces that Roberts would write for Strange Horizons or whatever else, which were always yeah. interesting and thoughtful and smart and careful and well worth reading. And and, and he continues to be a, a, a critic worth reading. Um, and I see the same in the writing of uh, Nina, Nina Allen, who's a really terrific commentator and, and critic, as well as being a, a wonderful writer. Um, but I, I wish there was some easier way to keep track of this stuff because you know, we find ourselves now, you get to the end of the year and you're like, well, what would you recommend? Uh, what, what would you comment on? What, what, what deserves to be in the mix? Well, when, and we, when you asked me that question, I immediately was trying to think in terms of very traditional venues like books because I read a lot of really strong pieces on Strange Horizons which seems to have an unusually high uh, caliber of writing in it and I, thanks to Neil for that. Uh, but I can I remember which ones were actually during the calendar year 2015? I'm not really very good at that, so I may be remembering a great essay that actually appeared two years ago. Yeah, well, I don't think or, that, yeah, I don't think any so. of us are that great at it. It's 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 one of those things. Everybody wants to sort of partake of the the well, not not everybody. People there are people who enjoy taking part in the awards nomination process, but isolating what you can and should nominate is quite often challenging. Yeah, but it, and, and, and yet it's a potentially very important Hugo category. There are Hugo categories that it seems to me can help define the discussion of the field and others that don't. I mean, the, the Hugo category, there, there's a whole group of Hugo voters mm-hmm. who know exactly who to vote for for fan artists. 
And to be honest, I have no clue as to who I should vote for in that category. Fan writer, usually the ballot includes a couple of people I know and some people I've not heard of. Yep. Uh, same thing's true with fanzine. When you get to related work, which is an awful catch-all category, on the one hand, it will have, you know, it can have some reference book about the work. The Art of Neil Gaiman, did that come out last year? Or the I year think before? it may have. It'll probably win just because it's got Neil's name on and it. So you basically, and I've talked to, uh, you basically might have a collection of really smart essays and reviews by, let's say, John Clute or Adam yep. Roberts, and it's going to be up against elves and orcs and hobbits in picture books. Well, let me and ask sometimes, mm-hmm. sometimes like Spectrum, they're important and, con- and, 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 and useful uh, art books. I'm not saying art books shouldn't be there. I'm saying comparing an art book to a collection of essays is a little odd. Let me flip, and this is a little unfair because it's going to overlap with some of your other work, but we will go here anyway because it's our podcast and we can do that. And any conflict of interest is our own and we can manage it. You are listening to us talking about us, so that's how it goes. When you look forward to 2016, uh, still yet yet to actually unfold, it is only the end of January after all, are there major works of criticism and review and nonfiction that you're looking forward to? And I can think of two that are potentially probably more likely to be late 2016, early 2017, that relate to your task as the head of the University of Illinois Masters of Science Fiction series. The first being, and I'm very much looking forward to this, Paul Kincaid's book on E&M Banks. Yes, that's going to happen. And I know he's finished it. I don't know if he's submitted it to you yet, but I know he's finished it. And I assume that'll be a 2017 book if it comes, you know, if anything. And similarly, there's Farah Mendelssohn's book on Robert Heinlein, which I think is sure to be fascinating. I don't know that anybody's going to agree with it because that's the nature of these things. And Farah is always a really interesting commentator. Um, but I'm really looking to hearing what, forward to hearing what she has to say. The, one of the problems with academic books is that you can't really impose deadlines on people because it's not as though you're withholding thousands of dollars in advance money from them. Uh, we do have, and I, I don't think I've mentioned it before, and I can't actually, I shouldn't mention the author at this point, but we have what should be a very interesting and intelligent book on Joanna Russ, which should be delivered sometime during 2016. Mm-hmm. by a major writer in the field. Yes. Um, there, there are other books that are uh, in the process. We're trying to... Uh, and again, I, I don't want to embarrass anybody who's behind. Uh, we do have somebody working on a book on Neil Stevenson. We have somebody who's supposedly going to deliver a book on China Mieville, which is interesting because China Mieville is kind of pushing the edge of what we can call a modern master of science fiction, isn't he? Well, I was going to say, I've got no idea why you're covering him. I mean, I love China, love his work. I've got no idea what you're doing. Um, first of all, you have to deal with the fact that there are a couple of science fiction books that are straight science fiction. Um, yeah, yeah, but I mean, come on. I, I, I yield in, well, I yield to a few people in my love and affection for the work of China Mieville, but not a lot. He's only been writing since 2002 or something, Gary. Well, I mean... Neil Stevenson. This is this is this is like a, a, a Justin Bieber bloody biography done for you know, Top of the Pops magazine. Hey, come on, you know Neil Neil Gaiman got started writing a biography of Duran Duran. Yeah, but he um, was a, he was a, he was a jobbing writer making money, and he kept it out of print for twenty years. What are you doing covering someone who's just started? It's like it's time to do a career overview on that master of science fiction, Anne Leckie, and you're going. She started writing eight minutes ago. We have a proposal 
um, we have a proposal on a book who's on a writer whose career is considerably younger than China's. Um, in China's case, the marketing people think that would be a really good book to have, even though. And the thing is, and I don't know that I've not talked. I will be talking soon to the person who's supposed to be writing the book, and I don't know if it's going to happen or not. But one of the things that's interesting about China was also interesting about Fritz Leiber, who I would love to have a book on, where you can't separate the science fiction from the fantasy, and you can't really rule science fictional elements out of the fantasy. I think, I think, okay, I think that's true, yeah, sure. The, the, the genres are inextricably linked and melded and merged, and that's true. But I, I think, and I say this in the, in the kindest possible way and in great support of China, you could argue that, that there's a case to be made that he's yet to hit the, you know, the, the mature period of his writing career. And so to start doing a Masters of Science Fiction book on him strikes me as being early. It probably is early. Uh, I don't think that means that you... It doesn't mean he has to stop writing. Writing a book about somebody doesn't no. mean... No, what I mean is the guy who's going to do... The, the woman who's... The person, whoever it is, man or woman, who's going to do the book about China should stop. Uh, well, that's an interesting question. I mean, I, uh, the, 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 there's always the problem. I, I think I may have told the story on the podcast before. When I was in graduate school, a colleague of mine was doing a dissertation on Philip Roth. And this was probably in the eight... Well, it was after I was in graduate school. And Philip Roth kept writing a new novel. Every, every time this guy would get a draft of the dissertation done, there'd be a, a different novel. and be completely different. I mean, the dissertation was supposed to end with Portnoy's complaint, and then the breast came out, and then life... Uh, and eventually, the plot against America came out. Every year, Roth, who was a very interesting writer, because he even ventured into science fiction late in life, every year he would write a book that would cause you to reassess his entire <clears throat> oeuvre, to the point where my colleague was thinking, I had I was, I was I was in the commons area at graduate school at the University of Chicago, and this guy was saying to me, literally, "I'm going to have to kill Philip Roth. I'm going to, <laughs> I'm going to have to stop him writing these novels so I can finish my damn dissertation." And I could see doing that with China. Just okay, China, no, we're going to okay. cut you down so we can write books about you. In defense of China, who really nobody should go and kill, and who's a sweet guy from my experience, yeah. right? It's just that the writer is wrong. The critic is well, wrong. I, yeah, no, that, they're wrong. They're too early. They need to go do something else. Okay, that's a, that's a legitimate argument. And so it's a legitimate argument about a number of writers who would be popular choices. I mean, most academic publishers would be happy to have a book about Neil Gaiman. Can, can still, I also say, by the way, it also makes the Neil Stevenson selection a little cartoonish as well. Well, Neil Stevenson goes back to the 80s at least. Yeah, yeah, I guess. I guess he's but, nearly 20 years, but yeah, okay. Okay, the length of career is an issue. Uh, I agree. And I like uh, the idea that we don't have a book on Asimov yet and somebody wants to write one on China. That has to do with the fact that you don't, as a, and you know this as an anthologist, you don't go tap people on, this, on, the, on the shoulder and say, you have to write this for me. You wait and see what they send you. And we have to wait and see what proposals we get. Well, okay, that's not true in the, in the terms of nonfiction. That's not remotely my experience in nonfiction. Have you ever tried to get people to write a book? It's uh, I've certain, well, not book length nonfiction, but yeah, I've certainly solicited people to write uh, sh- shorter pieces of, of nonfiction. Yeah, yeah, and I, I, I and told I've them what to write. That's what you do. Yeah, it's harder to do that with a book. I've, look, I'm, I'm sure that when if you're paying what I pre- assumed the University of Illinois is paying. 
it is more difficult to find people who are willing to write something other than what they would like to write anyway. Pretty much, exactly. Uh, but nonetheless, kind of thing, that's the gig. It's kind of like saying, okay, a Nancy Cress is 30, or Gregory Benford is 30 years into his career. I reckon getting somebody to write a Gregory Benford overview makes sense. Um, and Leckie's five really years. Uh, sorry? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, yeah. And Leckie's five years into her career. It really doesn't make sense yet. I can see where we will want to cover her, but it doesn't make sense. Charlie Mabel, 10 years into his career, doesn't make sense. You know, mm-hmm. um, I'm not just that at all. But on the other hand, you're assuming that a series like this will last indefinitely. And well, I, no, I'm, I'm not at all. What I'm saying is that each book has to have. I mean, for, for start to, to give an open. Well, first of all, one of the things this book is this series does is by its very title make itself a gatekeeping series. It says we are telling you who the masters of science fiction are because they're in our series, right? That's one of the things it does. Whether it chooses to do it deliberately or not. That's what it does. When it kicked off with John Brunner, which was a great choice to start off with, right? Uh-huh. Uh, it recognized that he is a master of science fiction and deserves yes. to stand amongst the greats of the field. China very well may. If you said to me, do I think you know, China may well stand with the greats of the, of the science fiction field? Absolutely, yes. He may even have done enough so far. But he's not in that part of his career. And I would have, re- I, I would have turned down the proposal based on that. And, uh, to be honest, I... And it's before your time, I know. So yeah. it's not that you commissioned the book or agreed to it. But I'm just saying, I, I think that's confused. Particularly since there's no but shortage I, of other people to cover. I thought you were going to raise a different question about China, and you started to raise it. And it's, it's, it has not to do with length of career, but with what do you deal, how do you deal with writers who no longer feel confined to genre? You mentioned, we've talked about both, both, both Cherry and Bujold have written substantial amounts of fantasy. Uh, we're not, China, whose work, eh, it's. It's you know, it's what I'm beginning to think of as the Lockmar genre. Mm-hmm. Uh, any kind of really strange future cities uh, owe a lot to Fritz Leiber, and and so you can find uh, Jet Vandermeer and, and China Mieville and Paul Cornell and all kinds of people who are doing versions of Fritz Leiber cities, uh, for Michael Swanwick. But that's not a genre name. So the problem I'm having with modern masters of science fiction is exactly what you said. You can't really ignore, and Edward uh, didn't when he was doing his book on Bujold, you can't ignore the fantasy. That's part of the writer's profile. You couldn't ignore the fantasy with Cherry. My problem is the term science fiction is no longer sufficient to cover what science fiction is. I, I, which, which is my other point. How much time do we have left? Because I've got to we're, we're over. We're like an hour now. Just quickly, oh I'm, I'm going to argue against you for a second. I know what we should do is go back and cut the junk at the beginning, go over the heart of the run, but we never do that. Look, I'm going to argue with you, and this is what I'm going to argue with. I'm going to take the David Hartwell argument. Uh-huh. And you're saying because science fiction has become, as a written form, sufficiently integrated and muddied, with, for want of a better word, uh, with other things, it's now no, no longer a um, sufficiently useful term to describe what's being written. The Hartwell argument would be, I assume, to put words into a dead man's mouth, that science fiction actually is a consistent thing, and the task at hand is actually to unravel the science fiction amongst everything else and talk about that. So, the challenge at hand for the Master of Science Fiction series is not to say, well, we'll cover the fantasy, and we'll cover this, and we will redefine science fiction to give us the, the scope to talk about this other work the writer's done. It's to go out and find people who are primarily writing science fiction 
and talk about that, sticking to a clear concept of what science fiction is. And I think that's generally true. I mean, one of the other borderline cases that we have a book under contract for, as you know, is R.A. Lafferty. And Lafferty wrote some very strange things that were probably fantasies, some theological romances, some absurdist melodramas, uh, things that were describable only as R.A. Lafferty. And yet, Lafferty thought of himself as a science fiction writer from beginning to end. Uh, Kelly Link still, still calls herself a science fiction writer. My point is that David's argument is absolutely understandable. All of his anthologies and his year's best anthologies argued that there is a core of science fiction which has not uh, dissipated at all. It's still there. Even his, um, uh, his space opera renaissance anthology, in which he argued that there was no new space opera. Space opera was simply a restatement of earlier uh, ideas, that the, the old space opera never went away. It splintered into military science fiction. It splintered into uh, planetary romances and various other kinds of things. So he can trace, and he could trace very persuasively, if you got into an argument with him, the core of science fiction, because unlike almost anybody else I know, he seemed to know every book. Yeah. At the same time, he had no problem with the fact that uh, you know one of his star writers, Gene Wolfe, was read by many of his fans as a fantasy writer. Sure. And that Gene ends up getting a World Fantasy Award, um, Lifetime Achievement Award, with nobody raising the slightest bit of uh, objection that why I mean, he's really a science fiction writer. Well, I mean, let's set aside the fact that Gene actually did write some fantasy. Yeah, he did. Um, but, yeah, look, in a sense, what goes into the book is a separate from what you attempt to discuss as a critic or a commentator, isn't it? You know, Gene Wolfe writes what he writes and it's responded to the way it is. When you start arguing about the evolution, or discussing the evolution of science fiction, defining canon, defining major writers, all this sort of thing, then surely you're trying to hold it to a consistent benchmark so you can discuss it. I think that to some extent the core of every book has to do that, but on the other hand, I don't want to take a writer like Gene Wolfe, for example, or we could mention Sherry or Bujold or any number of people, and, and say that we're only going to look at the science fiction because that's all we care about, because looking at the writer as a whole means looking at I mean, Gene Wolfe had written a mainstream novel piece, which is crucial to understanding how Gene Wolfe works. I don't agree with you. Ah. I don't agree with you. I, you, think, you can, I, think, I think you can totally do a book like... Uh, okay. You could do a book, the science fiction of C.J. Cherry, and she's written sufficient science fiction that she's covered all her major themes in her science fiction and her fantasy. You can go, you know, extract it out of the science fiction. And write an entire, entirely valuable, worthwhile, meaningful book. Now, it may not be a complete picture of the author in all of their complexities across 360 degrees of, of, of their writing career. But nonetheless, it casts a clear illumination on one thing they're doing. I think it's totally legitimate. I think it's totally legitimate oh. to write the science fiction of Gene Wolfe and not talk about the fantasy. You I, know. I think ignoring the other fiction that's important to the shape of a writer's career is not a good idea. Again, the model for this, and I've mentioned this to other writers who are working in the series, is Edward James's book on Bujold. He does not concentrate on the fantasy, but there are narrative tricks that she invents for her fantasy novels that later inform her science fiction novels. Uh, and, and the fact that she became interested in fantasy in a certain way, and the fact that she approaches fantasy like a science fiction writer, all that's important to understanding her as a writer. 
most of Edward's book is about the science fiction. Mm-hmm. He knows that. He's focusing on the science fiction. By this argument, though, John Clute should be merging the science, his two encyclopedias uh, and rewriting the separate entries so that they're then complete. With any number of writers, that's a serious problem for him. Uh, I think, How do well, you I think, okay, when you say it's a problem, I don't know that I agree. I think it's a characteristic, but whether that, that characteristic is a problem is something else. You know, I think you can discuss the fantasy, you can discuss Gene Wolfe in all of his complexities, but I think you can legitimately discuss Gene Wolfe's fantasies, Gene Wolfe's science fiction, uh, separately, and still produce an entirely valid, worthwhile, interesting, and meaningful uh, text. Yes and no. I don't think you can draw that line. I don't think you can draw a clear line between science fiction and fantasy anymore. Uh, there are any number of books that... Uh, we're looking at... Uh, last year, one of the interesting books was uh, was Kayashanti Wilson's Sorcerer of the Wild Deeps, or Will Deeps, I don't know how to pronounce it, which, which is clearly a kind of fantasy heroic quest thing, but talks about quantum mechanics and faster than mm-hmm. light travel. Uh, a few years ago, there was Karen Lord's West African Fable, Redemption and Indigo, which has quantum physics in it somewhere. Um, there, there is emerging within the works of some, not just writers who write fantasy and science fiction, but writers who will write fantasy and science fiction within the same work. Just a few weeks ago, we talked to Charlie Jane Anders, whose first very impressive novel, all the second, is both a fantasy and science fiction novel. Second. Okay. okay. Second novel. Okay. Her second, second novel. First real genre novel. Well, it's a first genre novel, but second novel. Okay. Um, it, it's it's important to note people keep referring to it as a, as a first novel and a debut novel and kind of thing, and it's not. You know, the, Charlie Jane's first book came out a decade ago. Right, but it was not a science fiction. No, it was not a science fiction novel. Um, look, I think you can sit there and you can talk about science fantasy and the intermingling of science fi- science fiction and fantasy and the changes to the field and everything else. But I think that there's still validity in talking about science fiction as a separate thing. And I, I, I'm not going, you know, you're not convincing me that just because the field is changing in some ways that there aren't valid discussions, discussions to be had that separate, th- separate out these two strands. And yes, for some people, the strands can't be on, you know, enmeshed. And you see, there, and this is the real problem, okay, if someone writes science fiction fantasy that's so intermingled that you can't on mesh it, are they actually masters of science fiction, or are they masters of something else? Well, that's I, uh, that, 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 that's using the terminology of the series against itself, I and I will. That. I'm going to use the terminology of the series against itself, there, like a there, bat, there be, because okay, you know, otherwise, what's the point there, of it? There has to be a substantial, uh, masterful list of science fiction works for an author to be considered for the series. That's absolutely the case. My argument, I think you're confusing two different things. Obviously, yes, you can talk about the science fiction tradition. You can talk about the science fiction tradition from Doc Smith through Heinlein through Van Vogt up to Anne Leckie and so forth and so on and never have to venture into fantasy at all. When you start doing that in the work of an individual writer of saying, I'm going to build a wall between your fantasy and your science fiction, I think that's a very antiquated attitude. Back in the 70s, I think it was Piers Anthony who wrote a series called Split Infinity. He did. In which alternate chapters would be science fiction, and then there'd be a fantasy world, and there'd be a science fiction world, and there'd be a fantasy world. And that, those, those were written at a time, first of all, you're dealing with a writer who had a very keen, generic, and commercial sense. 
at a time when it was clear that fantasy was dragons and elves and so forth and so on, and science fiction was robots and computers and spaceships. I don't think that wall exists anymore, or if it is, it's really permeable. Okay. I think that's true. Okay, I, I, I half agree with you. I certainly agree the field has changed. I certainly agree the wall is permeable. I think the world has always been perme- the, the wall has always been permeable, and it's a little bit inaccurate to say that it hasn't been. This gender, this genre blurring, this genre blending has always existed. Go back and read Piers Anthony and Jack Chalker and whoever else, and tell me that it hasn't. I, I, you know, Philip Jose Farmer. I don't believe you. It's always existed. The key here is though, I'm just saying it's legitimate in most cases to discuss them to discuss these things separately. And I think you can. I think you, I think you can discuss, absolutely discuss the science fiction of Michael Moorcock and then at some other time discuss the fantasy of Michael Moorcock and then at the third time decide that you're now going to talk about Michael Moorcock's career holistically in its entirety. And we're not going to agree on this. We probably won't. I mean, uh, if you write a book about Michael Moorcock and we, we, I don't have a proposal on the series, how can you write a book without talking about his massive mainstream novels? You can focus on the science fiction, but you have to acknowledge that that's only a fraction of his career. Well, hang on. No, you see, here perhaps is where we're sitting on the opposite sides of th- something and not seeing quite what the other person's talking about. You're talking about, I want to talk about Michael Moorcock in his entirety. Right? Yeah. And I'm saying, I want to talk about the science fiction of Michael Moorcock. They're different things. But if you're writing a book about Michael Moorcock, are you but going I'm not, to say... But I'm not writing a book about Michael Moorcock. If you were writing a book for the Modern Masters of Science Fiction series, you would be writing a book about Michael Moorcock, and you should probably do it. But Mother London, which I never... I, I, I which can't is brilliant. Say, I love it. I love it. It's a great book. I can't say I finished it, but it's great. He's a great writer. He is a terrific writer. Uh, and there are, I think, science fictional things going on in that that are informed by his training and background as a science fiction writer and editor. I think if you read Ballard's Empire of the Sun or his later novels, it's, it's, a, it's a question of judgment as to whether you say, uh, this is science, this is not, of course a lot of this stuff isn't material science fiction, but it uses the devices of science fiction. I go back to our friend Nicola Griffith who talked about Hild on the podcast. Hild is not a science fiction novel. But it does everything a science fiction novel does. Kim Stanley Robinson's Shaman is not a science fiction novel, but it does everything a science fiction novel does. Because we have to end up non sequitur for you, Gary. Uh-huh. Is Adam Roberts the Barry Molesberg of the 21st century? I don't even know if that's a compliment or an insult. It's not meant to be either. It's, it's supposed to be a, a looking at the characteristics of a career. Uh, first of all, Barry Malzberg never had uh, the kind of academic sinecure that Adam no. has. And yep. never would. Uh, the, thing that I, the thing that impresses me most about Barry, apart from the fact that his career, by his own account, didn't go anywhere, even though he wrote some phenomenally provocative books, uh, the thing I recall about Barry is that he remembers everything that he knew about science fiction. He knew everybody. He knew every agent. He knew astonishing things. He has an a infallible memory. But the books he's done about science fiction, uh, The Engines of the Night and the the retitled, re-edited version of Engines of the Night, his title I forget, 
uh, are t- tend to be short pieces that don't organize his thoughts in a way. So the main difference is that Adam is a disciplined, organized thinker. There are things in his history of science fiction. I was thinking about the, the, the fiction, not the non-fiction. Oh, the fiction. Uh, I don't know. Okay. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know enough about Adam. Short fiction. Um, but why? I have to ask. Why would you come up with Barry Molesburg? Uh, I guess largely because I was reading a science fiction novel based on the philosophies of Immanuel Kant, and for some reason it recalled uh, to to memory Barry's uh, the remaking of Sigmund Freud. His, his, his final major novel. Well, it's yeah, but but you know, you could have. I, I really wish I had had a chance to read Adam's novel and join you in that discussion, which I'm sure was fascinating. Because first thing that I thought of is that uh, was was Frank Herbert's The Santa Rosa Barrier, mm. which is based on the philosophy of Carl Jaspers. Yeah, and and Herbert was again a commercial writer who had very uh, considerable intellectual and philosophical ambitions. And yet, the Santa Rosa Barrier is only, if it's in print today, it's only in print because when people have read all 17 or 18 Dune novels, they have to find something else. Yeah. But, but Herbert was fascinated with, 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 with philosophical ideas illustrated in science fiction uh, long before the Dune series. You know what that sounds like? That sounds like a conversation for another day. It probably is. Philosophy and science fiction. Let's put that on the back burner. Deep back burner? No, we'll get somebody on who knows something about philosophy. Okay. Sounds like a plan. Okay. Until then, we should probably wind up. We're on for over an hour. I mean, I, I should probably, if I was ex- remotely responsible, go back and edit the, the the slow start off the beginning, but we'll leave it. It'll be fine. Uh, no, nobody expects us to go start fast out of the gate. We, we take time. <laughs> Unless we've got a guest. Anyway, so this is episode 266 in the can, Gary. As always, it's been fun. We'll be having some guests in the next few weeks to catch up on some new books and some new events in the field. So, Look forward to it. Until then, Gary, we remain now, as always, the Coot Street Podcast.